The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks very much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the Post-Pal Playbook. After the Fed chair speech sinks stocks, are we going back now to the June lows? Isn't that the question everybody is now wondering? We'll get the investment committee's take today. Joining me for the hour, Jim Labenthal, Degas Wright, and with me here on set, Stephanie Link and Joe Terranova. I'll take you to the wall, show you what the markets are doing here. 12 noon in the east, we're red across the board. Dow's down a little more than 100. Uh, a lot of focus on NASDAQ approaching a 1% decline. That's 104, 311. The yield on the 10-year note. So, Joe, I, I do talk about this as the post-Powell, post-Jackson Hole playbook. I think most are wondering how much of a pullback is coming, whether the lows are going to be called again. What do we think? So I said to you over the last couple of weeks that my next trade would be to buy the Qs. Unfortunately, Scott, there is not truth in that. My next trade is actually going to be this afternoon on the close when I'm going to buy Apple. I think you've got a tremendous gift here. Steph, tell me what you think. My biggest personal positions besides Joe T, Northrop Grumman, Pioneer Natural Resources, I want Apple to be my biggest position. I will buy Apple on the close today, and then at some point in the future, I will buy the Qs. I'm still a buyer here. I still believe it is not in anyone's best interest to be a seller of equities. Mm. I think we're navigating through a little bit of a process in terms of positioning and sentiment. Um, some of it's technically oriented. We spoke about that with Mike Santoli last week, mm -hmm. a lot of the algos being in charge in a light liquidity environment. But I'm still inclined uh, to add to risk in this environment. Okay. Um, so that plays right into where I wanted to kind of go with you, Steph, because, you know, Kramer today says my inclination is to buy, not sell. You heard what Joe just said. It seems like your inclination is to sell, not buy. I look at it. You know, one thing you did, you sold Amex. Yeah. Right. And you told our team it's possible we go back to the lows. I don't feel really great about the market right now. I'm looking for opportunities to trim any names that have ripped so I can start to buy. So inclination to be a seller here? Possibly. I mean, it, it all depends, right? I mean, look, the Fed is going to be raising rates. When they raise rates because of inflation, when you raise rates, you don't want to own long duration assets. You don't want to own growth. You don't want to own technology or not that much technology, right? I mean, I own technology, but I'm underweight, of course, and I have been all year long. Um, and so I think it's just really important to be prudent, right? I just think we're going to chop around. I've been saying this all year. I feel like the same thing, right? I think we're in this range because we have to deal with the Fed. The Fed's not our friend. You don't fight the Fed on the way up and also on the way down. Okay. And I think you want to be very careful of what you own. Pricing power stories, a little bit more value. I, I don't know about your Apple call at this very moment just because it's outperformed so much relative, right? I would love to see that come in a little bit it's more. Come, it has come in, right, from 174 to 161. Yeah, well, I know. It has come down. Well, it has, but it's, we have a lot of other technology stocks But isn't that, that the down. exact type of stock you want to own? In this it's defensive. Right? It's, def it's definitely defensive. But, I mean, if in within tech, I actually like IBM. 
GM a lot, right? I like Broadcom. I think the quarter is going to be fine. We'll see how it trades. It's down a lot. It's very, very cheap. So, yeah, I mean, I, I like Apple. It's not, that's not, I don't have a problem with it, but I just don't know if I'd be out there buying that one in particular. I'm more inclined to actually buy any of the energy names or any of the material names. And also, by the way, some of the financials as well, because I think those are the ones that are going to outperform. In the last couple of days, they actually have outperformed. Oh, they have. You present an interesting question here on, you know, okay, isn't this the kind of stock you'd want to own in, in this current environment? Um, yeah, right? No one's going to fight you on, do you not want to own Apple? The question for you and for our viewers is, do you want to put fresh money right here into Apple? Right. That's a totally different conversation, I think. I, that's, that's fair, but I think I look at the totality of what I own and the risk that I'm managing. Um, Joe T, the ETF, has a significant overweight to energy nearly 10%. So um, I'm there for energy, and that's actually the last couple of days. That's been working out, as, as you suggest. Um, but I, I look at the type of stocks in this environment that you want to own, and what am I right now, what are my biggest positions? Northrop Grumman, Pioneer Natural, okay, I think we're at this moment. There's something, there's a message in the outperformance mm -hmm. of Apple since July 1st. There's, there's something fundamentally that's being well, messaged there. Well, they've got $90 billion that they're buying oh, back the stock, right, too, right? right. So yeah. you could answer that question, yeah, yeah. right? Yep. So I, I think you can't ignore that message. And that's why I agree with everything that Steph just said, by the way. I don't think we're off to the races. We have an adversarial Federal Reserve. We have an inflation issue. It's a challenging environment. But, Scott, if, if, if Apple's not going to provide a form of resiliency like it has since July as we move forward, tell me what stock actually is. Well, Farmer Jim, uh, why don't you assess this move of Joe buying Apple at the close today? Well, I think, Scott, your, your second question to him about putting fresh money to work is the appropriate one. And I, I applaud Joe very much for stepping in. I, I think we are supposed to be buyers here. So having answered the second question first, now I'll answer the, the next question, which is why Apple... I own Apple. I own it at a little more than half the market weight, which is my way of saying it's going to do just fine. It's 6%, 6.5% of the spiders. It's something like 11% of the triple Qs. So as money comes back into the market, it's going to go to Apple naturally. My only issue here is that Apple is a 26 times multiple. Again, I own it. But I think at a 26 times multiple, you can't get multiple expansion. All you can get is earnings per share growth to drive your shares. And that earnings per share growth is going to be 8 to 10 percent over the next few years. That's fine. That's fine. We should be happy with that. I just don't think it shoots the lights out the way energy does, which Joe already said he has. You want to respond? Oh, I, listen, I, I, I agree with Jim, and I think you have to, I, you have to make it a determination. What do I want to do here? Do, do I just want to sit back? Do I want to see the market fall below 3,600 and then take advantage of it at some point? Is that the thesis? That's not my thesis right now. I don't think that's where we are. Mm -hmm. I think we've already witnessed that kind of 2008-style performance in June. I don't think that's where we're going back to. So in that environment, you want to try and identify tactical opportunities very strategically particular equities that you want to buy. I'm not going to step out. Okay, Jimmy, 26 times. I understand maybe for Apple that's a little bit rich, but we've got an iPhone 14 coming out. I think that's going to increase revenue for them. And I'm not necessarily sure that I want to go out and buy some of these hyper-growth stocks. Mm -hmm. Not in the environment Joe, you're you describing. Could, you, could buy, you could buy Meta uh, for 13 long. times right. earnings, right? And eight times EBITDA, right? When they have real earnings, <laughs> real, real EBITDA, uh, too. Uh, 
I want to give an attaboy to Joe. I mean, listen, he just said, he said the question that's on everybody's mind. He said, no, we're not going down to 3,600. I'm with him on that. Okay. Uh, I'm also with him, by the way, on not buying the hypergrowth stocks. Why? Why do it? I mean, even if even if you think that 10 percent isn't enough on Apple, then go ahead and augment it. With, I'm talking about for a next year's return. Augment it with a good industrial. I mean, take a stand on a Caterpillar, a Deer or even a Boeing. Why take a stand on a hyper growth stock that doesn't have earnings and you're not sure? Steph pointed out the Fed's going to raise rates. You know, that's going to hit those hyper growth stocks. I'm 100 percent with Joe. All right. What about you, Degas? Who are you with? Yes, yeah, so I'm a multi-year holder of Apple. And so and as I still hold it, it means that I still believe in the thesis. So, you know, congratulations, Joe, for joining the uh, bandwagon here. So but as it relates to new dollars or as I look at my portfolio, what I'm doing pretty much is what Stephanie's doing is looking at the overall portfolio, each holding and looking at where can I start pairing back my positions. And I'm looking at those technology companies that have done really well for me, such as Cadence Design Systems, which designs the uh, software for semiconductors, or Afinol, which is an electric connector. I'm looking at maybe pairing back that uh, exposure. I'm also looking at Meta. I may pair that back. So I'm looking at where can I pair back to then reinvest. And I see a lot of opportunities in REITs, because REITs are a great play inflation because as we all know landlords can always increase rents and where's the most sticky part of this inflation is on rents so that's where I'm looking at uh, putting additional investment dollars in so the the bottom line then from most of you I think fair to say Joe is that Friday was an anomaly the thousand point decline you must think it was an overreaction not a signal of more dramatic selling to come, or you wouldn't suggest that you're buying Apple today. I think, as I said to you Friday on, on OT, I think the market was a little bit offsides. I think the market didn't expect such a hawkish message from the chairman. Uh, I still think we're in a process where time's the solution. This is a U-shaped recovery. I don't think we go back to 3,600 unless, unless we're all universally right Everyone's long oil. Do you think that everyone's can, long energy, right? Can, the, well, I don't, I don't know about that, but do you think the Fed can control inflation and can they do it quickly? That's a great is that question. A rhetorical question? Yeah. I, that's, it sounded like a rhetorical question. It wasn't a rhetorical question. I mean, I've been saying I don't think they can. I mean, I think they can slow the economy down in a big, big way, and that will maybe the commodity side of things yeah, will come down. Yeah, but see, the wild card so, word but, you used was quickly. Yeah. But, yeah. That's why it sounded like a rhetorical question. But that's why like I think the it's hard. The obvious answer is no. Well, it's, I think it's very hard to be aggressive on stocks if you think the Fed is raising rates. I really do. I think that's a headwind for stocks. Yeah. Well, so I'm you, not saying sell everything. No, I own you, everything, you, but I'm just saying like. Well, you and a lot of other people think that because that seems to be the conventional thought, right? Fed raises rates. Fed shrinks balance sheet. Economy slows, slows. Earnings get hit. Stocks go down. And we have a recession next year. I don't think we're, we're in a recession right now, but I think we will go into one next year. The other question is, if we're not necessarily going back to the lows, if we do have more continued selling, where, where are we going back to? Let's ask Jonathan Krinsky. He's BTIG's chief market technician, always offers a fresh perspective based on the chart. So you don't necessarily think we're going back to 3,600. That's where the S&P hit its low in June. But you do think that we've set the stage for a test below where we are now, where? 
Yeah, so we think that uh, 3,900 is pretty reasonable for S&P 500. Um, you can look at some different metrics. Uh, one of the things we look at is the amount of volume that's traded at each given price level in the S&P. Uh, and 4,200 was the area over the last two years where the most amount of volumes traded. So it's not surprising we kind of got rejected uh, from there on Friday. And then you kind of have this void where there isn't much, hasn't been much volume traded uh, at, until you get down to 3,900. So we think, you know, there's a little bit of mechanical trading today around the 50-day moving average around 4,000. Um, but ultimately, we think you need a little bit more weakness uh, down towards that 3,900. But um, to Joe's point, at this point, our, our thesis is that we're not going to uh, breach those June lows. Yeah. Frankly, Jonathan, you don't seem to have much conviction around this call. And I bring that up <laughs> because from your note today, it says if we were to meaningfully break under 3,900, we would reevaluate your thesis. So, I mean, at least that's in the back of your head that we could break below that. And if we do so, then all bets are off and then you'll you'll reevaluate. So it doesn't sound to me like you've got a whole lot of gusto or belief uh, that we're completely out of the woods. Well, I think the, the you know, a couple of the key issues, the two main drivers on the macro front um, of equities have been rates, which, you know, we know that yields topped the two days before the market bottomed in June, right? So if you have a continued upward pressure in rates, that's certainly going to be a headwind for equities. And the U.S. dollar, the dollar has not backed off really at all, um, you know, and so if we continue to get a, a big surge higher in the dollar, you know, those are the two issues. And then finally, you, you guys have been talking a lot about Apple, and you know, we've been on um, your show recently talking about Apple that we thought might be vulnerable to the downside off that 175 level. Um, I kind of disagree with Joe buying it here. I think, um, you know, one of the things that concerned us is Apple was a very uh, defensive stock from January through May. So it outperformed the market in that downturn. And then it actually accelerated that outperformance off the June lows. So it acted both uh, defensively and offensively, it doubled the S&P's performance off the June lows. So that tells us that it's very crowded. You, you don't get a, a stock that acts that you know defensive and offensive without it being very crowded. So you know, we think there is a bit of risk in Apple, and by definition, um, you know that's a headwind for the S&P. So okay. those are kind of the, the the metrics that we're looking at here. Let me just get Joe's. Uh you know, retort to, to that if, if you have one. Yeah, Jonathan. So I, I don't I don't believe that just because uh, a particular equity takes a characteristic or a style where it's either defensive or in a period where the S&P is recovering, it's leading, it's outperforming in each one of those instances. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to underperform now and enter a new stage. I think what's more likely is that it continues that outperformance, in particular as you move through the course of the year. And then last point, let's remember, I think this is the most significant thing when thinking about Apple. When it went down to 130, okay, you have to believe that Tim Cook and management, they're aggressive buyers. They've got that $90 billion buyback authorization. We're going to be coming here to the end of the calendar year, January 1st, to introduce that 1% tax. Why not? be more aggressive and pull forward some of that 2023 buying into this year. I think those are all the reasons why I want it to be my biggest position, and that's why I'm going to add to it on the close. JK? Look, I think, uh, you know, we could, in some sense we could both be right, but I think, you know, at, at 160 here, you know, I, I think there's risk down, you know, at least towards 150. So, you know, let's see if and when we get down there. Um, but from my perspective, again, you, you just, you've had a situation where, you know, stocks typically in market corrections either outperform 
um, on the way down and then underperform on the way up or vice versa. And when you see it doing both, again, that just makes me a little cautious that, you know, everyone's fully there at this point. Yeah. Jonathan, appreciate the time and your Thanks, perspective Matt. as always. We'll talk to you again soon. That's Jonathan Krinsky, BTIG. Um, it does raise the, the, the real serious question of, of to what degree do you want to own technology here? Right. I know you said, you know, um, mega growth. I mean, we're talking essentially about two different areas, right? There's mega cap. No, I mean, technology, mainly technology is growth. So it doesn't even matter then. So I think they kind of get lumped together. If rates are going higher, you don't want to own long duration assets. Yeah, growth, is, growth is a long duration asset. So is technology. Know, but, Not all of it, but a lot of it. Well, that's what I mean. But but Jimmy, Farmer Jim, you, you made the point, I think it was last week, um, that when you talk about longer duration assets, you at least tend to look at mega caps differently than some of the others. Mega caps having... Um, more earnings power now, if you will, yeah. uh, than down the road, like some of those once high flying stocks, which are more susceptible to a rise in rates and then a pullback in their share prices. No, that's exactly accurate, Scott. And, and you can still see some of these, you know, formerly high flying names continue to come down. Um, you look over the last week at, you know, Zoom and Peloton as, as two examples. But, you know, going back to technology, you're not hearing me get really negative on Apple at that multiple, nor Google, which I own, nor Microsoft. If I were really negative, I wouldn't own them. But my overall comment on technology and now really focused on large cap tech is that if you look at the XLK, it's around 24 times earnings. And you have to ask yourself, if the S&P 500 is at about 16, 17 times, you know, do you really want to be in the more expensive area? The answer to that question is yes, if you see higher growth in earnings there. I happen to see higher growth in earnings coming from the traditional value sectors. How? Industrials, materials, energy, financial. See, that's what on I the just, back of that's what I feel like needs to be further debated. And maybe, Degas, we bring you to that part of the debate is that if you think if you believe Steph, who's cautious on the market, who thinks the Fed's raising rate, I mean, the, the the caterpillars of the world are like right in the thick of don't fight the Fed kind of stocks. Right. If they're going to raise rates, the economy's going to weaken. Steph's suggesting a recession next year, like many are, are calling for. Why would you want to be in industrial stocks now? Well, what you want to look at and what I looked at is that if the technology stocks that we're looking at, if you look at it from a valuation and profitability, they are actually lower opportunity at this point in the market than the industrials, than the materials, than energy, healthcare. So that's how we, we're looking at it. We're looking at it from a modeling perspective. We're seeing more upside at this point in the cycle. You want to weigh in on that? I mean, industrials have pricing power. They do benefit from higher commodity prices. And I think commodity prices are going to stay high. Even though they've come down, they're still very high, right, uh, versus historical uh, precedent. So to me, I think some of the industrial companies, I have, like, special situation stories, right? I'm not just saying blanket. I want to own all of industrials. But I do think they have the pricing power. They have the free cash flow from the higher commodity costs. The valuations are not extreme. Some of them have been raising dividends, buying back stock, doing all the good things, all the things that technology companies are doing. So I think if you think commodities are going to stay elevated, you can absolutely own a select group. It's the ag trade. 
Yep, it's, that's right. It's the ag trade. It's, it's, you know, John Deere, which has worked out so well for most of us on the show. Yep. Uh, even t you could add and, and look at Mosaic, which I've been talking about recently. Uh, but I think that component, I think you're correct. I think that component of the industrial sector is where the opportunity is. And then I think at some point you do look at logistics potentially. And, and look at the opportunities there just in, in, yeah. in the ability to move goods around. Crude by rail, crude by rail, that the, the rail should be benefiting as well. But so. Jim, I mean, you're talking about much broader industrial plays than just ag related, yeah. clearly. Right, and so I think this is a very simple question. Do you believe there's a recession coming or not? You know where I stand on it, but I'll state it for the record again, is I don't think we're going to get a recession. I think there is all? too much moment. Sorry? At all? I just want to be clear. because Some say we're not going to have it in 22 or blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to get yeah. to the heart of the whole thing. You, yeah. So you don't think we're going to have a recession, period? Period. I think what you're seeing right now is inflation coming down as we speak which gives the Fed room to go 50, 25, and 25, and then stop. The market and the, the economy, frankly, has been taking these rate hikes in stride. Um, there's nothing that tells me that, you know, Intel, just to pull a name out of hat, is going to stop its pretty sizable expansion, uh, you know, corporate CapEx expansion plans, because the 10 years at three and a half percent instead of two and a half percent. There's nothing that indicates that to me on the horizon. No, I, so I, I, I don't. Joe, I want to get Joe in because yeah, no, as I, you're speaking, he's disagreeing with you, and I want people yeah, to hear No, why. Jim, I'm sorry. I, I disagree. I think the economic contraction actually has to happen. Call it whatever you want. Recession, yeah. not recession. <laughs> there has to be an economic contraction in order to combat inflation. I was watching Stephanie and Liz Young this morning on Squawk Box, and Professor Siegel came on, and he, he offered a remarkable statistic. 90% of the recent economic data that's been released has been under consensus and it, it's showing that you're seeing the weakness and you're seeing the ism manufacturing yes they're con they're contracting from a much higher level but you have to see the the economy uh contract and i think that's why scott when you look at industrials i, I don't know i'm i don't know what jimmy thinks of you know airlines i, I don't want to be in airlines right now because i think there's going to be that economic pressure right i mean jim we can uh, argue from here to eternity on whether we're going to actually have a technical recession or, or not, at Joe's point is, is well, I think, made in the sense it doesn't really matter. You're going to have a significant economic slowdown. I mean, you're already having one that is only likely to get worse if for no other reason it has to, yeah. because the Fed wants it to, and the Fed is going to do everything it can in its ability I, to get it to. I, I disagree that it has to happen. And where this really comes down to the fulcrum between the two sides of the argument is inflation. And you are seeing, if you look at the, it, at the microscopic elements of inflation, you're seeing a large number of them coming down. Whether it's gasoline, corn, cotton, all the commodities, whether it's freight costs, which factors all the way through uh, very, very many of the goods that are out there, whether it's the inventories at Walmart and Target, which absolutely is placing downward price pressure. Now, this is not that we're going to be at 2% CPI by the end of the year. No way but meaningfully coming in uh, lighter than expect and expectations on inflation. I, I think that's what's in the offing here. And that reduces the need for the Fed to go all the way to 4%. I'm telling you, I think this economy can handle 3.5% on the Fed funds rate. Why? Because all of these plants and infrastructure that have already been announced are 10-year plans that don't get interrupted by variations in the 10-year Treasury rate yeah. over one or two years. They also years. don't come to fruition for many, many years from now, so it's insignificant in the near term. 
It uh, no, you're doesn't wrong. matter. You're, 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 you're wrong to matter. dismiss it like that, Scott. You're, you're wrong. You're no, wrong. No, I'm not. Because shovels, that haven't, because shovels that haven't gone in the ground yet, in, in, in some of these, in ground, some of these instances, they don't bear economic fruit today, tomorrow, or next week. They just they don't. Have gone, shovels have gone in the ground. You can talk over me all you want. Shovels have gone in the ground in Arizona, in Austin. Mm. Look at Taiwan Semi. Look at Samsung. Okay. These things where's, are already going on Where's that Intel right plant now. that you always cite, Jim? Where's that? Where's that? Has that shovel gone on the ground yet? Uh, uh, listen, they're on track for that. Has they the shovel that gone on the be- ground yet of the one you always cite? Have shovels not gone in the ground for Taiwan Semi and Samsung? Has the Intel shovel gone in the ground for the one you always cite? The Intel shovel is on plan. The others are already shovels in the okay. ground. I don't know why you want to focus on one that's already on plan when there are shovels in the ground elsewhere. I I, I don't know why you're so adamant that this isn't happening right now. It, the, the facts are it is. The, the digging doesn't bear the fruit now. That's my only point. And it doesn't bear it tomorrow or the next day either. This, Scott, this, this Scott, notion that we're not Scott, going to have any kind of slowdown because this uh, onshoring deal is going to happen in the next 10 minutes is just false. It's explain to me then, why, explain to me why continuing jobless claims continue to be at ultra low level, despite all of the layoff announcements that have been made. The whole point, Jim, is that those numbers are going to go up as the Fed continues to do what it what Jay Powell explicitly looked you in the face on Friday and said he was going to do and wanted. It's like not Scott, a difference of opinion. It's just factual. It's not factual. It's actually a difference of opinion. No, it's factual. You and I have a difference of opinion. No, it's factual, actually. The economy is going to slow more because Jay Powell and the Fed want it to. And they're going to do things to make it slow. I don't understand what the, there's. This isn't a difference of opinion. It's only a matter of how much it slows. It's not a matter of whether it is going to slow. How can it how can it not slow? Scott, we're going back and forth here, but I'm going to go back to where I started. It comes down to inflation. Inflation dictates what the Fed is going to do. And if you think any of these plans are going to get interrupted because we get to three and a half percent on the Fed funds rate, I disagree with you. And it is a difference of opinions. Jim, you cannot about- tell me. We cannot tell me what the future is going to be as a fact. What about Don't wages? What about rents? Wages are so sticky, right? You just sticky, told me what the right? future is going to be as a fact, and, and that's Natural gas prices are at 14-year highs. Food is up 13% year over year. I mean, yeah, okay, so maybe some of the commodities are coming down, but there's still a lot of inflation, and the Fed is hell-bent on getting to 2% in inflation. And the core PCE came out on Friday, that which nobody talked about, was 4.6%. Yeah, it was a little less than expected, but it's still really, really high. So the Fed is going to be more aggressive for longer, and that is going to slow the economy. Apparently yeah, it's and not. I think, too, is that you have to look at, you know, what the consumer is going to be impacted by that. So in your portfolio, you want to look at those areas that do not depend on the consumer to do well. And so if you look at the industrials again, a company like Quanta that has a backlog of uh, projects tied to electrification of the grid. So that's where I'm seeing you want to move your tactical decisions around Mm -hmm. avoiding areas for the consumer and go in other areas that you can really benefit in this market. All right. Uh, We got to take a break. We're way overdue. (laughs) 
We have a halftime exclusive interview coming up with Glenn Kacher of Light Street Capital. He's voting against Zendesk's $10 billion deal to go private. He lays out his alternative plan. It is a halftime exclusive. We're back in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome to your news update at this hour. I'm Tyler Matheson. International inspectors are heading to the Ukrainian nuclear plant at the center of a growing alarm about a potential radiation disaster. The United Nations nuclear watchdog mission is set to arrive at the Russian-occupied power plant in southern Ukraine later this week. Ukrainian engineers continue to operate it, but shelling has taken place in its vicinity. The mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, is urging locals to get out now after the state was battered with record rainfall and the Pearl River swelled to devastating levels. Mississippi's governor, Tate Reeves, also declared a state of emergency in anticipation of Pearl River flooding, now forecast to crest at nearly 36 feet. That is a full seven feet above flood stage. And the U.S. Open kicks off amid major buzz as it is likely to be the final tournament of Serena Williams' career. Williams playing in the women's singles today. Then she will join her sister Venus on the court for doubles on Wednesday. It'll be the first time the two have played together since the 2018 French Open. Scott, back to you. All right. Look forward to that. Tyler, thanks so much. That's Tyler Matheson. A new twist in the proposed takeover of tech services company Zendesk. Large shareholder Light Street Capital, led by the well-known investor Glenn Kacher, says it will vote against the near $10 billion deal involving two private equity firms and is proposing an alternative plan. Light Street's Glenn Kacher joining me now in a halftime exclusive interview. It's good to see you again. Welcome back. Good to see you, Scott. Got your letter. It's a big, thick one today, too, uh, in which you say you intend to vote against the company's currently proposed transaction. Um, Why? What's the problem with it? Well, the important thing here, Scott, is we're offering investors, public market investors, a chance to participate in the improvement of the financials of this company. Unfortunately, the current proposal to sell for cash to private equity firms for a dollar more than where we're trading today is not a great outcome for 
my investors and I have a fiduciary responsibility to them to make sure we are getting the most value for our shares. And what we've uh, proposed here is an alternative where we will, uh, along with others, invest $2 billion into the company, and then the company will spend $5 billion to buy back more than 50% of the shares in the company. And then we're, we're going to see through see this through in the long run, and investors that public investors that want to stay with the company are going to benefit from running this company much more profitably, tripling the operating margin in the company. And so instead of sitting back, letting private equity, and we're big fans of private equity, they do a great job for their investors, but instead of letting them buy the company for cash, cut expenses, run the company much more profitably, get all the benefit for their investors, and have the public market investors not benefit, we're going to do something. We're going to run that playbook but we're going to run it in the public market. It sounds like you just don't want private equity to own this company. I mean, you, I know you say you like private no, equity. No, we want to own it. We, we're we're, I, I know, we're putting I know, our money I, out where our mouth is. I hear you. I know you say you like private equity, but you literally just picked apart the private equity model, right? We're, we're, we, want to run, we want to run their model. We just want the public market investor to get a chance to benefit from it. Yeah, you also, I, think, I think we're doing the really fair thing for the public market shareholder. You, you also want to get rid of the CEO and, and expand the board, right? Well, we have a ton of respect for Mikkel. Mikkel's built this company from 2007 till now, starting it in Copenhagen, bringing it into to the U.S. I mean, it's, a, it's an American dream success story, right? And it's an incredible company. That's why we own shares in it. That's why we want to continue to own shares in this company. And that's why we think pu the public investors should. But we have a little bit different plan. We, we want to see the company run much more profitably instead of edging up the, the, the uh, cash flow margin or operating margin of the company one and a half percent uh, percentage points a year. We want to triple it. We want to take the company, show how profitable it is. These, these, these well-run uh, software as a service, enterprise software companies have incredibly stable customer bases. Um, and they provide an incredible amount in, uh, of value to their customers. They, they, the customers don't want to leave. They want to continue to see great products expand and get better. And so we want to keep doing that. And Mikkel's done an incredible job for 15 years building an incredible franchise. Um, but we, we do want to see it run much more profitably. And um, that's that's the plan we want to go forward with. Yeah, I, I know you talk about you, you want um, the, the, you know, current shareholders or public investors to reap the rewards of what you think you can can deliver here. I'm wondering what you make of the fact that it looks to us as though from recent 13F filings that Jana is no longer a shareholder. Uh, third point, it looks to me, uh, got out recently, at least from their most recent filing. What do you make of that? Well, I, you know, I can't speak for them. But what I can say is I think there's investors that have lost a lot of confidence here. This is a company that had a buyout offer at $127 to $132 unsolicited um, from including one of the, 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 the firms here that's trying to buy it now for $77.5. Uh, and at the time, Zendesk turned down that offer so that they could pursue a very unpopular or unpopular with the shareholders acquisition of Momentum. That transaction, it was well known amongst public shareholders that, that no one wanted them to do this deal. And ultimately, the management team lost 
the shareholder vote 90 to 10 against the, the transaction to buy Momentum. They also missed the opportunity to sell the company at $130. And now they turn around and think it's a great idea to sell the company at $77.50 in cash and leave the and leave the public market shareholder just standing on the sidelines. That's not good with us. We that's not good for my investors. And that's not doing the best at this company. And it's not taking this company to the place that it needs to go over the next three, five, ten years. And we've laid out an amazing plan in our letter uh, as to explaining what we're we would do going forward. And also this transaction that we're proposing as an alternative to keep the company public, to buy back over half the shares and um, you know, really run the, the private equity playbook in the public market. Mm. Would you support uh, a deal at a higher price or you just don't like this particular pairing as much as as anything else? Well, I think I've been pretty public in saying what I think this company can be worth in the future. And uh, it's multiples of today's current price. So I don't want to say what we would or wouldn't do under, you know, unnamed uh, scenarios. But what I will say, I think this company's worth a heck of a lot of more than we than it is today. And we want we've laid out a plan to get there. And so in, in that case, um, you know, that's what we want to do. We want other shareholders to join us in that in that plan and, and to vote for our proposal. And instead, instead of selling this company for basically a dollar more than it's trading today. Let me ask you, I'd hate to, to miss the opportunity to talk to you about where we started our program with, you know, what's going to happen for NASDAQ, technology stocks. Really, I mean, you are right. a, a well-known tech investor as much as anybody. Uh, what are your thoughts? Your, what is your outlook given this sort of new environment that we find ourselves in? Well, you know, this is a great example. Zendesk is in some ways a, a great example of what's going on. Incredible company incredible customer base, incredible products. And, you know, it's lost a lot. It's lost a lot of its value. And it's still all those things. And and I look at the, you know, not only Zendesk, but the whole sector and say, this seems like a, you know, incredible buying opportunity for our industry. And um, so we're incredibly positive and, and we, we like the portfolio that we have built uh, to come out of the, the current environment that we're in right now, we're kind of bouncing along a bottom here and uh, expect that ultimately when uh, investors decide to come back and take position, more positions in this sector, that we're in the right stocks that are going to benefit greatest from from that uh, from that re-rating. Doesn't sound to me like you think we're going back to the lows of, of mid-June for NASDAQ if you suggest that this is a great buying opportunity. Yeah, that's not my expectation, but, you know, everyone's uh, entitled to their opinion about where we're headed. And uh, we we really look forward and see see brighter days coming. You know, I've been through this. You know, I started in this career uh, in 1993, been through several major corrections, um, including, you know, the, the dot com uh, debacle and, um, you know, through, through the global financial crisis. And I look back at, at, at those two uh, big corrections and think what we're going through right now is, is something of a blip. Mm. You know, before I let you go, and, and real quick, you know, we reached out uh, the day we learned of uh, Julian Robertson's passing. Um, you are a Tiger Cub. You mentioned starting in, in 93. Uh, what are your recollections of, of what he meant to you uh, for what you do now? 
Yeah, Julian was just an incredible mentor to me and to so many of us that were lucky enough to uh, go to work every day at, at Tiger Management. He's just a, he was an incredible, um, exemplary uh, uh, man of character and morals. And I think sometimes what gets left behind uh, when talking about Julian, he was a great investor. There's no doubt about that great judge of value and great, great ability to see through choppy waters in the near term and find value for uh, the long term. But the incredible thing, I think, that all of us that had the privilege of working with him were able to see was how he ran his business, how he, uh, the kind of people that he wanted to work with, not just inside the walls, but when we chose partners, when we wanted to um, learn more about an industry and, and the and the consultants that we hired and the people that we that we um, uh, went to. We wanted to find really the best, uh, but also the most moral, the most the most straightforward, the most upright individuals in in, in each of those communities. And that was just an incredible. Uh, it was an incredible opportunity to watch him uh, operate, and he was an incredibly transparent leader. And really showed us, and, and it, with his uh, behavior, how to run a great business. Mm. And so that I learned that from him. I mean, I remember back when I was there in the mid '90s or early '90s, and um, we started investing in in Russia. And there were, you know, it was it was it was you know a challenging time. It was early, let's say. To be investing in some of those firms in, in Russia, and you, you you read the books by Bill Browder and others, and uh, about that environment, and um, you know Julian was able to really say, "Hey, we've got a we we may need to step back here," even though at the time it was painful and and it led to us admitting uh, you know some mistakes, but in the long run, uh, that was that was the correct move. It's just really interesting to hear your insights, and I appreciate you sharing with that sharing those with us and, uh, and our viewers. We, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Glenn Cater, thanks so much. Thank you very much. All right, that's Light Streets, uh, Glenn Cater. I should let you know we, we have obviously reached out to Zendesk for comment. Uh, we have not heard back, and we'll let you know if we do. Up next, the ETFs you need to watch today. We're back right after this. Welcome to the ETF portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. After Powell, what's next for the markets? Let's talk with Wes Krill. He's Dimensional Fund's head of investment strategist. West Dimensional runs $575 billion, including a suite of ETFs. Uh, Dimensional is known for its long-term fundamental investment philosophy. What advice would you give investors right now about the impact of inflation on corporate earnings? That's the big worry right now on the street. Yeah, and even if you just look at the markets last week, I think it's a good reminder when you see market volatility, the markets are in fact doing their job. They're incorporating information, changes in expectations about the future. And to us, that tells us that we need to be disciplined as investors. We need to make sure we are there to capture the equity premium. You're going to love this stat. So if I go back to 1997, if I invested $1,000 in the U.S. market, in the Russell 3000 index, that $1,000 would have grown into a little bit over $10,200 uh, by the end of 2021. If I miss the best five days in the market, that drops to about 8,600. So, so we need to stay invested. invested. Exactly. That's the point here. Now, you've always invested 
emphasize long-term investing here. And you've often pointed out about these big market drops. There's been 15 drops of 20% since 1926. At the worst this year, we were down 22%. But you've pointed out several times to me, it's very rare to have market drops bigger than that at this point. What does that tell us about long-term investing? Yeah, I mean, more than half of the time during these 15 market downturns, the downturn has actually stopped shortly after it crossed that 20% barrier. So if I were to show up after each one of these downturns and stay, as I'm saying now, to stay invested, more often than not, I was right, in, even in the short term. And what we see is that very quickly the markets will turn around. About 60% of these market drops, you are made whole within one year following the trough. I want to just point these out. 60% of the time, you were made whole after drops of 20% yeah, or within more. Within a year of them hitting their, their max drawdown, exactly. But that's not an argument for longer term. Hold it, buy and hold, I don't know what would be. All right, we're going to talk a lot more about this. Much more coming up with Wes on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. He'll be joined by Nave, Dave Nautic. He is the financial future strategist for Vetify. They'll address the case for global diversification. And should China be a separate investment case? Why the run in value stocks is not over? And what's right and wrong about this single stock ETF craze we keep talking about? That's today, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime report, back right after this. All right, welcome back. Degas, you have a new buy. Tell us about it. Yes, Medical Properties Trust. This is a pure play on hospital and investment strategy. Basically, the hospital sells the, the uh, facility to the tr uh, trust, and the trust leases it back. So this allows the hospital to monetize that property. And so they've done this in about 500 facilities across 10 countries. It has a 17 multiple. It has a 70% profit margin, plus it has a 7% dividend yield. All right. Okay. All right. Stay with the halftime. Mike Santoli joins us next with his midday word. We'll be right back. All right. We're back on the half. Our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, is right here on set yeah. with his midday word for the you know obvious reasons that people have probably already <laughs> heard about today. Uh, what do we have here? So we're you know post pal playbook is front and center. It is front and center. And I really think the big question is how much has and hasn't changed about the, the really the overall picture. We've been kind of fighting these same issues for months and months. Mm -hmm. um, what's the destination? How fast do we get there? How long do we stay there? I think one thing we can lean back on is all of the bullish signals that came out of that rally off the lows, right? And the most bullish people before Powell still were the people who put a lot of credence in those momentum signals. It didn't invalidate them, right? You still have those uh, maybe giving you a little bit of a benefit of the doubt. So if that's the case and that, you know, even if we go down further from here, I heard you had Jonathan Krinsky on talking about 3,900. Mm -hmm. Fine. Um, I think the question is what you would do if you got there and how you felt when we were there in June and then, and then we ramped right off That's of it. That's always the big question is yeah. what would you do? Because there's nothing that says it can't puncture it and, and, you know, and have a lower low and then it's all of a sudden. Uh, so I, I know that there's all these different historical patterns that are in people's minds, uh, but that is, is, is the interesting part of it and I think it's not a foregone conclusion that it has to hustle its way back down. Nice comeback uh, thus far, right? Dow was just positive. Yeah. It's down nine. I mean, a lot of focus on NASDAQ. I don't know if you heard that Joe said at the close today he's going to buy Apple. Yeah, I did. This is a good battleground area right now. 
It is. And I think there is an argument that says when the market is in one of these uh, flux periods, looking for relative strength wherever it comes from. And that's why a lot of people like energy. A lot of people like some of the defensive stuff. And, you know, I think that's where it comes from. Yeah, we were talking about energy before. I mean, who, do, who doesn't like energy yeah, at this point? And it's almost yeah. as if energy has to be. Growth managers don't own energy. When they start buying, then we should probably sell. Right. Earnings revision folks like it, but not the growth, not real growth yeah. managers. High yield managers like it, that's for sure. I'll see yeah. you for your uh, final word. You. All right. Uh, we'll do final trades next. All right, 4 o'clock Eastern time, overtime. We got Adam Parker, Shannon Sakosha, Eric Johnston. He's been negative on the market. Now we'll find out what his post-pile playbook is. Look forward to that conversation. Hope you guys will join me then. Let's do final trades. My guy, Jim Labenthal, you're first. Uh, Cleveland Cliffs. I've already explained why in my overall thesis. You can... You can explain even deeper if you want. I'll give you that time, Jim. For those who may not economic have put the link together. Economic, <laughs> economic activity with hard construction will require steel, Scott. Okay. Thank you, Jim. Degas Wright. Fact set. The industry leader for market intelligence within the investment industry with a 10% earnings growth. Okay. Uh, full disclosure, a user of fact set. <laughs> Stephanie Lake. We all are. Yeah. <laughs> right? Dollar General, they had a really good quarter. They beat top bottom line. And the, also, the margins held in really remarkably well. About 80% of their business is consumable, so that's why they are doing well. Traded 20 times like a staple stock, but I like it. Okay. Finally, Joe T., the man who's going to buy Apple at the close today. Absolutely. You're locked into that now. Oh, oh, oh I will. <laughs> uh, ExxonMobil. I think there is at least, at least another 10 to 15% upside in this stock. That's great for the economy, right? Oil continues to go. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you in overtime. A few hours from now, the exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.